The sky is darkening, the lightning flashes, the thunder rolls. You are in the soul trap. We are glad to have you tuning in as always. My name is Joel Tillis. This is The Soul Trap. Thank you for listening wherever and whenever this broadcast reaches you. Make sure to check out The Soul Trap on Facebook. And you can also now find Soul Trap information at thesoultrap.com. Thesoultrap.com. Make sure to check out the new website. We are in the process of updating it and getting it exactly where we want it to be and how we want it to be. But make sure to check out thesoultrap.com. We love to hear from you. You can reach us there. And it's actually going to be interactive. You can send us stories. And uh, should they uh, reach the level of strangeness that is accustomed to the Soul Trap, we will post them and uh, give you credit. And we're excited about having you as listeners and fellow journeyers on this path share in our research of connectivity and truth and strangeness and uh, even a splash of entertainment. So make sure to check out thesoultrap.com or to reach out to us on Facebook. Today, we are going to be talking about one of the strangest subjects that we can be talking about, and that is Charles Manson, the convicted murderer that murdered no one. From Really, the beginning of time, there is something deeply satanic and sinister about murder, is there not? Satan himself was called a murderer from the beginning. And one has to wonder, I've often thought in my mind about Eve, exactly what did she know happened to her after eating? And what was her complicit responsibility in Adam tasting death? Did she know that Adam would die? Was her heart A murderous heart like the tempter that spawned the temptation that led to death? Of course, Cain murders Abel right out of the Garden of Eden, one of the most first and heinous acts that human commits on human is murder. And so the human race begins its foray into the seas of blood that is human death and depravity. Why? What is it about the spiritual connection of taking life? Why is it that the end of even things like hardcore pornography is murder, snuff films? There, there is something evil in the taking of life. There is something spiritual. And quite frankly, there is something energetic in the taking of human life. And although Charles Manson is not classified as a serial killer, I suppose that there is no more famous murderer in American lore and history than Charles Manson, which is a a fascinating conundrum when you think about it, because technically, technically, Charles Manson did not actually murder anyone. If you believe the standard line, he may have induced or brainwashed the Manson family to follow his orders, but that is even something that is somewhat doubtful that he was capable of doing. Still, there is no physical evidence and almost no, if little at all, circumstantial evidence that makes him directly a murderer. This is something that Manson himself has stated time and time again without changing his story or wavering. Over 40 years, his story has never changed. His plea has never changed. Under the guise of money, the offers of further fame, 
He has never one time altered his proclamation of innocence. Push me down and make me into all these little things that they need me to be, and that's not me at all, man. That's not me. I killed nobody. I broke no law. Well, whether you believe him or not, his story has never changed. But there is clearly ingrained a historical gospel about Manson, the Manson family, and the murders that he was charged with. But as is often the case, there is a lot more context to the story, maybe even a lot more reality that lies beneath the fiction, or at least the legend that has been created. So what is the official story? And does the official story actually jive with reality and with the facts as they truly are, and not as they have been presented in limited light? I draw the official story from the mainstream narratives that are easily found on the internet and from different books and different sources. In his childhood, Charles Manson was born November 12, 1934, to a 16-year-old unwed mother by the name of Kathleen Manson Maddox. He was first named No Name Maddox. Within weeks, he was called Charles Miles Maddox. Manson's biological father appears to have been Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr., against whom Kathleen Maddox filed a paternity suit that resulted in an agreed judgment in 1937. Manson may never have known his biological father. Scott worked intermittently in local mills and also had a local reputation as a con artist. He allowed Maddox to believe he was an army colonel, although colonel was merely his given name. When Maddox told Scott she was pregnant, he told her he had been called away on army business. After several months, she realized he had no intention of returning. In August 1934, before Manson's birth, Maddox married William Eugene Manson, whose occupation was listed on Charles's birth certificate as a laborer at a dry-cleaning business. Maddox went on drinking sprees for days at a time with her brother Luther, leaving Charles with a variety of babysitters. They were divorced on April 30, 1937, when a court accepted Manson's charge of, quote, gross neglect of duty. On August 1, 1931, Maddox and Luther's girlfriend, Julie Vickers, spent the evening drinking with a man by the name of Frank Martin, a new acquaintance who appeared to be wealthy. Maddox and Vickers decided to rob him, and Maddox phoned her brother to help. They were incompetent thieves and were found and arrested within hours. At the trial, seven weeks later, Luther was sentenced to ten years in prison, and Kathleen was sentenced to five years. Charles Manson, at a young and tender age, was placed in the home of an aunt and uncle in McMeshan, West Virginia. Manson later would characterize the first weeks after she returned from prison as the happiest time in his life. Manson's family moved to Charleston, West Virginia, where Manson continually played truant and his mother spent her evenings drunk. She was arrested for grand larceny, but not convicted. After moving to Indianapolis, Manson's mother started attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings where she met an alcoholic named Lewis, whom she married in August 1943. 
As well as constantly playing truant, Manson began stealing from stores in his home. In 1947, Maddox looked for a temporary foster home for Manson, but she was unable to find a suitable one. She decided to send him to Gibalt School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana, a school for male delinquents run by Catholic priests. Hmm. Manson soon fled home to his mother, but she took him back to the school. He spent Christmas 1947 in McMeshan at his aunt and uncle's house, where he was caught stealing a gun. Now, the first offenses for Manson were fairly run-of-the-mill for a juvenile delinquent. Manson returned to Gibalt, but ran away to Indianapolis ten months later. Instead of returning to his mother, he rented a room and supported himself by burglaring stores at night. He was eventually caught, and a sympathetic judge sent him to Boys Town, a juvenile facility in Omaha, Nebraska. After four days, he and a student named Blackie Nielsen stole a car and somehow obtained a gun. They used it to rob a grocery store and a casino as they made their way to the home of Nielsen's uncle in Peoria, Illinois. Nielsen's uncle was a professional thief. And when the boys arrived, he apparently took them on as apprentices. Manson was arrested two weeks later during a nighttime raid on Peoria's store. In the investigation that followed, he was linked to his two earlier armed robberies. He was sent to the Indiana Boys School, a strict reform school. He later claimed that other students raped him with the encouragement of staff members. Manson developed a self-defense technique he later called the insane game. When he was physically unable to defend himself, he would screech, grimace, and wave his arms to convince his aggressors that he was insane. After a number of failed attempts, he escaped with two other boys in February 1951. The three escapees were attempting to drive to California in stolen cars when they were arrested in Utah. They had robbed several filling stations along the way. Driving a stolen car across state lines is a federal crime that violates the Dyer Act. Therefore, Manson was sent to Washington, D.C.'s National Training School for Boys. Now, a couple things I want to just hit real quickly here that stand out. A. In all of Manson's early crime spree, and even in his crime spree as a young adult, there is absolutely little, if any, record of violence. Secondly, the idea that he played insane is not directly quoted by him, but was mentioned that he mentioned it by an inmate that was released some time after his imprisonment. And this inmate wrote a book to which Manson questions much of it and denies even more. Thirdly, you begin to see a profound change in Manson's psychiatric behavior after his stint at the National Training School for Boys, which was located in Washington, D.C. We return to our story of Manson's early years. And at the National Training School for Boys, upon his arrival, he was given an aptitude test. He was at this time illiterate, and his IQ was 109. The national average was 100. His caseworker deemed him aggressively antisocial. On a psychiatrist's recommendation, Manson was transferred in October 1951 to National Bridge Honor Camp, a minimum security institution. 
His aunt visited him and told administrators she would let him stay at her house and would help him find work. Manson had a parole hearing scheduled for February 1952. However, in January, he was caught raping a boy at knife point. Now, up until this point, no violence on his part. Then, this charge of rape is brought against him. Now, that even in itself has been called into question as to whether or not that was a fact. But this petty juvenile criminal now became a predator to some degree after his stay at the Washington, D.C. boys' home, if we are to believe the official version. What happens here begins now to point us in a very interesting direction. Manson was transferred to a federal reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia. There he committed a further eight serious disciplinary offenses, three involving homosexual acts. He was then moved to a minimum security reformatory in Ohio. Why? It was there that he was expected to remain until his release on his 21st birthday in November 1955. Good behavior, however, led to an early release in May of 1954 to live with his aunt and with his uncle. In January 1955, Manson married a hospital waitress named Rosalie Jean Willis. Around October, about three months after he and his pregnant wife arrived in Los Angeles in a car he had stolen, Manson was again charged with a federal crime for taking the vehicle across state lines. After a psychiatric evaluation, he was given five years probation. Manson's failure to appear at a Los Angeles hearing on an identical charge filed in Florida resulted in his March 1956 arrest in Indianapolis. His probation was revoked. He was sentenced to three years in imprisonment. While Manson was in prison, Rosalie gave birth to their son, Charles Manson Jr. During his first year at Terminal Island, Manson received visits from Rosalie and his mother who were now living together in Los Angeles. In March 1957, when the visits from his wife ceased, his mother informed him Rosalie was living with another man. Less than two weeks before a scheduled parole hearing, less than two weeks, less than two weeks, Manson tried to escape by stealing a car. Does that make sense? It doesn't, does it? He was given five years probation and his parole was denied. Manson received five years parole in September 1958, the same year in which Rosalie received a decree of divorce. By November, he was pimping a 16-year-old girl and was receiving additional support from a girl with wealthy parents. In September 1959, he pleaded guilty to a charge of attempting to cash a forged U.S. Treasury check, which he claimed to have stolen from a mailbox. The latter charge was later dropped. He received a 10-year suspended sentence and probation after a young woman named Leona, who had an arrest record for prostitution, made a tearful plea before the court that she and Manson were deeply in love and would marry Charlie if freed. Before the year's end, the woman did marry Manson, possibly so she would not be required to testify against him, or so people believe. Manson ended up taking Leona and another woman to New Mexico for purposes of prostitution resulting in him being held in question for violating the Mann Act. 
Though he was related, released, Manson correctly suspected that the investigation had not ended. When he disappeared in violation of his prote- uh, probation, a bench warrant was issued. An indictment for violation of the Mann Act followed in 1960. When one of the women was arrested for prostitution, Manson was arrested in June in Laredo, Texas, and was returned to Los Angeles for violating his probation. Manson spent a year trying to uh, unsuccessfully appeal his revocation of the probation. And in 1961, he was transferred from Los Angeles County Jail to the United States Penitentiary at McNeil Island in Washington. It was there that he began to spend his time learning to play the guitar, learning to uh, become what he would end up becoming, and that is a lover of music and a musician, or so he states. Now, according to Jeff Guinness's biography of Manson, his mother moved to Washington State to be closer to him during his McNeil Island incarceration, working nearby as a waitress. Although the Mann Act charge had been dropped, the attempt to cash the Treasury check was still a federal offense. Manson's September 1961 annual review noted he had a tremendous drive to call attention to himself, An observation echoed in September 1964. In June of 1966, Manson was sent for the second time to Terminal Island in preparation for early release. By the time of his release day, on March 21, 1967, Charles Manson had spent more than half of his 32 years in prison and other institutions. This was mainly because he had broken federal laws. Federal sentences were and remain much more severe than state sentences for many of the same offenses. Telling the authorities that prison had become his home, he requested permission to stay in prison upon his release. Again, again, what is important to draw your attention to is that although he was a criminal, his ability to manipulate and violence and murder is nowhere on the radar screen. This, a man so fearful of the world that he wants to stay in prison, we are told now becomes the fearless leader of a cult with the fearless intentions of starting a race war and the ability to mind warp and control dozens of people. The Manson family was a desert commune and cult the story goes, formed in California in the late 60s, led by none other than Charles Manson. The group consisted of approximately a hundred of his followers who lived an unconventional lifestyle with habitual use of hallucinogenic drugs. Most of the group members were young women from middle-class backgrounds, many of whom were radicalized, we're told, by Manson's teachings. Now this is the man who has an IQ of 109, who is illiterate, who has spent half of his life in prison. And yet, all of a sudden, he's the leader of 100 people, able to manipulate with philosophical rantings and ravings, perfectly attuned to the hippie culture, which he should have no exposure to, based upon his time in prison. After Manson was released from prison for petty crimes in 1967, the Manson family moved to San Francisco and later to a deserted ranch in the San Fernando Valley. Manson's followers also included a 
small but devoted unit of mostly impressionable young women and girls. According to Susan Atkins, who, and whose initial statements in late 1969 cast the die for the template, henceforth applied to the telling of the story in popular media, the Manson family began to believe without question Manson's claim that he was a manifestation of Jesus and his prophecies of a race war. They gained national and international notoriety after the murder of actress Sharon Tate and four others on August 9, 1969, by Tex Watson and three other members of the family, acting under the instruction of Charles Manson, or so we're told. Group members also responsible for a number of other murders and assaults, petty crimes and thefts, were charged. April 22, 1971, Charles Manson was admitted to state prison from Los Angeles County, for seven counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder for the deaths of Abigail Ann Folger, Sharon Tate, Lino and Rosemary LeBianca, and others. He was sentenced to death. When the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional in 1972, he was resentenced to life with the possibility of parole. His original death sentence was modified to life on February 2, 1977. On December 13, 1971, Manson was convicted of first-degree murder. He was also convicted of first-degree murder in August 1969 for another death of Donald Jerome, Sh Jerome Shorty Shea. In other words, a petty criminal, actually bad at crime, at some point becomes America's most notorious murderer. At some point becomes a man capable of manipulating dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people. At some point, a man who at best could rob cars now becomes the Messiah of a race war that would help bring to end, and this is the key, the hippie, counterculture. If we believe the mainline story. I don't think you guys have seen me. Really? No. What don't we understand? You don't understand yourselves. No, but what don't we understand about you? I grant you we don't understand ourselves, yeah. but what don't we understand about you? Just what I said. I'm inside of you, man. Yeah. I live inside of you inside every one of you and to say that suggested what you being evil is inside of no, us life yeah. evil it's not, you know it's beyond good and evil man it's a balance it's abaraxas it's the pope roller skating yeah. he keeps one hand on the table all the time he never tells you he's running numbers yeah. on it he's got the dice in his hand yeah, but now, I mean, you know like we all know that you should by now what do you think about the idea of of responsibility taking responsibility for your own action i do you you believe believe for me. Sure. Now let me ask you a question. All right. Uh, how comes the court shirked and, and, and turned their backs on me and wouldn't let wouldn't give me my rights? They gave you your rights. Rights and what reaction? I didn't even get to put on defense. Yeah. When it comes to defense time, it's we're taking too long and this covered it up and told the public another outburst, another Manson outburst. Yeah. If you what defense did I put on? What witness did I call? Did I call one witness? I never got to call one witness. There is, you will not find any 
a group of people who will not believe, who, do not, who don't believe Benson got a fair trial. And human rights are over in Russia. We won't look at Charles Manson. We'll just cover that up. We won't look at the fact that we've had a nine-year-old kid locked up and blaming him for everything we did since 1943, will we? When we return, the conclusion of our interview with Charles Manson at San Quentin's responsibility for the Tate LaBianca murders. There is no regret, no sign of remorse. How did Manson bend others to his will? At the end of our conversation, Manson's forcefulness, anger, and sense of theater all come to play.